0: The Greensense Show is sponsored by CEA Technology, providing a sustainable modular indoor growing system. Visit CEATECHN.com to learn more. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Greensense, where we bring you eco-innovations that are changing your world. Pacific Gas and Electric expects electricity demand will rise 70% in the next 20 years, which the California-based utility company notes would be unprecedented. Similarly, the prestigious management consulting firm McKinsey expects U.S. demand will double by 2050. In the July 29th edition of the Wall Street Journal, Elon Musk stated that he anticipates an electricity shortage in two years that could stunt the energy-hungry development of artificial intelligence. Is the electric grid the weakest link in a clean energy future? Here to help us digest this complex topic is Autumn Proudlove, Associate Director of Policy and Markets at the NC Clean Energy Technology Center. Autumn, welcome to Greensend Show. We're so happy you could join us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: For those who may not be aware of your organization, it provides a variety of support for clean energy technologies, practices, and policies. Uh, tell us a little bit about your organization and anything you'd like to add. Are you a nonprofit, a, a, a for-profit? Uh, start with that.
1: <laughs> sure. So we are a, a bit of an odd duck, I guess. Uh, um, we're technically a public service center, and we're located within NC State University. So part academic, part state government, part nonprofit um, but we also do, uh, you know, some consulting work. So we're a bit of a mix of different types of entities. But ultimately, public service is at the heart of what we do. Um, we have at the center a policy program which I lead, um, where we're looking at what's happening across the country on clean energy policy. We maintain a database, the database of state incentives uh, for renewables and efficiency, known as Desire. Um, where we maintain a centralized source of information on all of these various policies, incentives, programs that are available across the country to make it easier for people to find and, and see what's actually out there. Um, we also
0: how are have, you funded?
1: Uh, we funded through a variety of sources. We have a, a very, very small amount of state appropriations that we receive for core operations. Uh, we receive a lot of grant funding, um, Department of Energy grant projects we do. Um, my team also sells reports um, where we're tracking policies, so selling those to industry clients and doing some fee-for-service uh, work as well to help clients navigate more customized research and analysis issues.
0: So you're, you're an uh, an unbiased source of information. You're not funded by the utility industry. Mm-hmm. You, you've got multiple sources, and uh, you're doing a good, good work for the public out there.
1: <laughs> exactly. We are here to help everybody and do so in a neutral, objective, unbiased way.
0: Fantastic. Well, uh, thank you for joining us again. And the Center recently published a report on the 50 states of grid modernization, Uh, which will be the basis of today's discussion. Why was the report written and who is the target audience and how often is that report published?
1: Mm -hmm. So the 50 states of grid modernization report, we publish this on a quarterly basis along with some of our other policy tracking reports looking at distributed solar, electric vehicles, power sector decarbonization, Um, But specifically, the grid modernization report, we're tracking state and utility actions related to this big nebulous topic called grid modernization. Um, So what's happening at state legislatures and at regulatory um, commissions across the country. We use a pretty broad definition of grid modernization. Um, You know, we're looking at policies, incentives, utility deployment related to advanced metering infrastructure. Um different smart grid technologies, microgrids, battery storage, demand response. Um, but we're also tracking um, things like distribution system planning, participation of these resources in wholesale markets. And then some things that might not seem like they naturally fit under the grid modernization umbrella. So utility business model reform and rate design, um, because we see you know, the utility business model is driving oftentimes the investments that utilities are making in their grids. And then rate design is driving um, the investments that customers are making, what technologies they adopt, like distributed storage and other um, DERs.
0: And who's the report targeted to?
1: So the report is targeted um, really to any that is working in space of grid modernization or clean energy really we have a lot of utilities that read it policymakers and regulators wanting to see what other states are doing that's always the big question and what ideas you can pull from different parts of the country those you know clean energy companies that are looking to keep on top of the very quickly changing landscape of state policy and then your typical consultants and researchers and Um, the finance community. So it's a pretty broad readership that we have. Um,
0: But mainly it's written for a professional market of people that work in the industry.
1: It it is geared toward the professional market where our desire database, that's our public um, website, that's also useful to the industry, but also geared toward homeowners who are just looking to find an incentive for a heat pump.
0: Well, we'll get back to the report, but let's put the situation into context. Uh, we have increased demand for electricity from many sources, including electric vehicle charging, consumers and industry. And most people hear about the electric grid, maybe their eyes glaze over. Uh, they think it's this homogenous network of power plants, transmission lines and distribution systems. Tell us you know, in simple terms and, and realistically, what does the uh, electric grid look like today?
1: Mm-hmm. So today, and you know, traditionally, the electric grid has been comprised of this network of centralized power plants, transmission lines, and distribution lines with power flowing in one direction from the centralized generation ultimately to end-use customers. Um, today, though, we're, we're seeing a lot of change happening with the grid. Customers are no longer just end-users of electricity. Um, they're increasingly becoming active participants in the grid and providing energy themselves and services to the grid so it's becoming a bit more of an interconnected web rather than that traditional one-way power flow and along with all of this technological change that's happening with the grid we're seeing a lot of policy change as well because our current regulatory structure and framework that was developed it was designed for that One way is more simplistic power flow um, with, you know, utilities owning generation and and transmission and distribution. And now there's a lot more third party and customer ownership, um, multiple power flows and going different directions. So new technologies like storage, that really wasn't a thing until the last um, decade or so. So you know, the whole regulatory landscape is having to be rethought and redesigned to match what's happened on the technology side of things.
0: And how many entities make up the grid, roughly?
1: Roughly, the the grid? Um, Well, utilities are, I would say, are the main entity making up the grid where they typically own, you know, generation, transmission, distribution systems. It depends on the state and the region that you're in, um, where often there's more third-party owned generation in certain locations, especially where there's an open wholesale power market. So you do have a lot of developers who are a part of the grid, Um, I would say.
0: Let me ask this a different way. Uh, The grid is not homogeneous. It's made up of many different entities. Do you know what the total? I heard like thousands of companies make up the grid. Is that correct? Or?
1: That sounds correct. There's, I think, between two and 300 investor-owned utilities in the country, and then many, many publicly-owned utilities. So it would be in the thousands of utilities that are um, owning parts of the grid and operating it.
0: And since you have different types of ownership, how does that impact an entity's ability to maintain and invest in the grid.
1: Mm -hmm. So So for
0: example, does an investor-owned utility, which is usually a large company like PG&E or AEP or Duke, do they spend more money and are they more proactive than maybe one of the smaller utilities?
1: Mm -hmm. I think the big answer is, and it depends, (laughs) where, you know, investor-owned utilities often have a lot of resources at their disposal. Um, They also have a more rigorous usually regulatory process to go through where investments must be approved by their um, public utilities commission. Um, That's a process that for the most part, um, municipal utilities or electric co-ops don't have to go through. In some states, they are subject to um, more regulation, but often if those utilities own um, their grid in their service area, they have a bit more flexibility where municipal utilities are regulated by their city council of the city and electric cooperatives are ultimately regulated by their members, their co ops So they're member owned. Um, so it's a bit more uh, flexibility there where you're not beholden to as much state policy and state regulation.
0: What is the economic impetus for a an owner of a service area to invest in the grid and keep it at a high performance. Mm-hmm.
1: So, an investor owned utility typically, these utilities will earn or have an opportunity to earn a rate of return based on how much capital they invest. Um, So they have a direct financial incentive to invest in the grid because they can earn a return on that. So there is incentive for them to maintain the grid, to continue investing in it, whether or not those investments they propose um, to the regulators are approved or not is another question, but they do have an incentive to go and invest in the grid. Um, Public power utilities, they are, not earning that rate of return that an investor-owned utility is, yet they would still have an incentive to you know, keep their regulators uh, in the sense that they have regulators happy and keep their customers happy. Nobody likes to have power outages happening and um, it's always important to keep your customer base uh, pleased.
0: Globally, a lot of countries have state-owned grids. Our grids are pretty much privatized do you have an opinion on which is better?
1: Um, I think that is a a good, worthwhile question to dig into. I don't know that I have an opinion on which is better. They obviously both have their benefits and drawbacks. Um, and it, it's a bit difficult to compare the U.S. sometimes to these other countries where the regulatory frame. I look at things from the policy lens, the regulatory framework is entirely different here than there. So it's you know, would something like that even work here and fit into the structure that we've created and is would be very difficult to fully undo. Um, so I'm sorry I don't have much of a that, better
0: opinion. That, that, of- that's a fair assessment. Um, let me ask a, a question maybe a little different way. Is there a gold standard globally that people compare their, their uh, grids to? Is there one country that does it head and shoulders above the rest better?
1: Um. That I do not know. I would probably look at, you know, outage rates and customer satisfaction. Um, But then again, you know, the same thing goes in the U.S. looking at every single state. They have different goals, different policy priorities. So what might be considered the gold standard or a great grid in one state, another state may say, no, you know, this is our priority, what we want to focus on, and this is the direction we want to move. So a lot of it is kind of
0: in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, yeah subjective. I, maybe a way to say it is that uh, maybe no state is perfect, but each each operator has things they do well. And this, if you looked at it collectively, you could come up with mm-hmm. a whole list of things mm-hmm. that are done very well. Sure. Um, so we're relying much more each year on electricity. And so the grid needs to increase capacity, as I said in the intro. Uh, what are the projections for future electricity demand and how does the current grid compare to future demand projections?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, there's a lot going on right now with energy efficiency and demand response. There's a lot of potential there to reduce electricity demand. But on the other side of that, there are so many efforts ongoing to electrify transportation and to electrify buildings that projections... I think pretty much across the board are that electricity demand is going to significantly increase. It'll probably be different from state to state and region to region. But uh, utilities are projecting uh, increases in demand in their integrated resource plans, um, planning to add new capacity in upcoming years. So that's the direction that it's looking like we're headed.
0: And uh, right now, most of the grid is powered by Uh, coal-burning power plants. There's a big push for renewables. Sounds like there's a lot of competing interest going on right now. We've got more uh, demand coming in the future, yet we're trying to change our power source. Speak to that a little bit.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's growing demand, yet we're trying to move away from what we currently have, a lot of gas on our system, still some coal, toward more renewables for the most part. Um, So adding on additional electricity demand to that, it increases those needs even more. So you really need to encourage uh, development, find land and funding and transmission to accommodate all of that renewable generation. Um, Interestingly, we track utility integrated resource plans pretty closely. And from what we've seen, the vast majority of the additions that utilities are planning to add are solar, wind, and battery storage. And I think battery storage is kind of a key there where that's intended to help integrate all of these additional renewables that are being added to the grid, maybe reduce your peak demand so that you don't have to rely on some of those natural gas peakers so you're able to get away from those fossil fuel fire generation uh, plants that we're trying to do while uh, integrating greater amounts of renewable energy into the grid.
0: And then there's another complexity here. Uh, And again, thank you for being on. This is a very complex subject. Uh, I don't mean to ask questions that are difficult to answer. It's just the complexity of the nature. No, no, bring it on. (laughs) But the grid also needs to be robust and resilient to recover from disruptive events. And it seems like we're having a lot more of these uh, each year. You Mm -hmm. know, uh, we have uh, uh, weather that's uh, unpredictable. We have climate change, terrorism, computer hacks, and geomagnetic storms. What needs to be done to make that grid more resilient?
1: Mm, Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that both states and utilities are spending a lot of time focusing on, um, undertaking studies of grid resilience, undertaking grid resilience planning in a lot of states. Um, Utilities, they're actively making investments to improve the resilience of the grid. So from things like undergrounding lines and doing tree trimming, um, to more advanced investments like distribution automation and self healing systems. Um, there's also, I think, efforts to make the grid more distributed, thinking that moving away from such a centralized system to something like some resilience benefits. Um, so, there's a lot of interest in microgrids right now, um, how to navigate the regulatory barriers. We always come back to that <laughs> of doing a microgrid, um, where those are most feasible and also increasing our reliance on distributed energy resources that are located closer to load. Um, So those are some of the strategies that are being undertaken right now, but it is a huge area of interest. I think just yesterday I heard of um, a significant amount of money going from DOE to Puerto Rico, which has obviously faced some grid resilience challenges with hurricanes Um, and that funding is to improve the resilience of their grid. And they're looking a lot at, at microgrids and, and distributed energy resources.
0: Well, moving away from centralized power to distributed power makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of power loss through distribution and transmission lines. So if it doesn't have to travel as far, that gives us immediate uh, increased capacity or or savings or, or less mm-hmm. loss. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So let's get back to the report and talk about the positives on the kind of modernization that's being done. So the first is states and utilities moving forward on performance-based regulations. Explain what performance-based regulations are and what that means.
1: Sure. So I guess before I you know, go into performance-based regulation, let's back up to what the current model is. So yes. most utilities, they operate under you know, a traditional cost-of-service-based regulation model uh, where they have the opportunity to earn a certain rate of return on their capital investments. Um, So there's concern that this could create an incentive for utilities to just build a lot of stuff. So some of it might be unnecessary or maybe it's not in the public interest. Um, And that obviously comes into play with grid modernization, um, where I think everyone agrees the grid needs upgrading. But people have different ideas of what needs to be done and how much investment needs to be made um, so that we're not, quote unquote, gold plating the grid as some people are afraid of. So that's where performance-based regulation comes in, why why it's relevant to this conversation here, um, where performance-based regulation or, or PBR, that ties the utility's opportunity to earn a return to its achievement of certain objectives. So this could be reducing their peak demand, it could be shortening interconnection times, it could be increasing the number of distributed energy resources that are in their service territory it could be you know anything that you deem to be in the public interest that the utility should be actively working toward Um, so they have an opportunity to earn their return based on how well they achieve these goals or you know on the flip side oftentimes there's a disincentive or penalty if they don't achieve these goals so that you know, the intent here is to align the utilities' financial interest with the public interest um, so that we're all moving in the direction that we want to move.
0: And that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but the $24,000 question is who sets those goals?
1: Yeah, and that, it depends. You, typically, it is the Public Utilities Commission has the ultimate say in what a goal is. Sometimes state legislatures will enact legislation directing the commission to uh, implement performance based regulation, and they might set some guidelines, like, we want, you know, goals based on this, this and this, or it may be very broad, and they leave it entirely to the commission. And then in some cases, you have utilities coming to their regulators and proposing the goals. So ultimately, the regulator does have that final call in, you know, what those goals should be.
0: But there is a check and balance so that the uh, utilities aren't setting the goals uh, that they can reach. <laughs>
1: really, yeah, they do need to be approved by the regulator.
0: <laughs> so one goal could be the amount of renewable energy that uh, a, a, a company is using for, for source of power.
1: Yep, yep, exactly.
0: Great. Um, Let's go on to the next one. That was a good explanation. Growing interest in long-duration battery storage. I think we understand what that is. What what kind of policies are being put in place or what kind of modernization?
1: Yeah, so obviously, you know, the majority of um, deployment right now around battery storage is with short-duration lithium-ion batteries. Um, And it's become pretty mainstream, has really grown a ton. Um, But now as we continue down that path of decarbonization, utilities and states are seeing a need or an opportunity for longer duration storage. So right now there's not a lot of policy designed specifically for long duration storage, but there are a lot of studies and working groups taking place. Um, I think Massachusetts and Maine might be undertaking something um, where they're specifically looking at long duration storage. So some policy proposals might come out of that. And then we're also seeing in the utility integrated resource plans, Utilities starting to include plans to add long duration storage in the later years of their planning period. So those are the two fronts where we're starting to see this emerge and become part of the conversation.
0: We interviewed a group that was uh, making electric buses and using those to store uh, power at night and get it back into the grid. Mm. um tesla's got their tesla wall as a way to store energy do you see those as significant contribution to storage or are they just a small amount
1: uh, an individual one is a small amount but in aggregate then they can actually add something and that's you know the virtual power plant discussion and when you start aggregating all of these distributed resources they can really add up to something um but also you know the value to an individual it could be a A community center that operates during, you know, a storm and a power outage. So the value to an individual location could be pretty high for, for resilience.
0: Well, the last point we have in the report is utilities including storage capacity additions and integrated resource plans. Explain what that means in simple language to us, Layman.
1: Yeah, so I think I've mentioned integrated resource plans several times here. It's hard to get away from them. (laughs) Um, Utilities in most states, not every state has a requirement, but most states where utilities do own generation resources they have a requirement to plan out for a period of usually 10 to 20 years, what their needs are for the grid, what they expect demand to be, and then what resources they currently have are going to be coming offline that they wanna retire and what resources they wanna to add to the grid. Um, so that's you know fundamentally what we're looking here is that these plans for generation changes over the next um, decade or two. Um, So when we're looking at these, increasingly, we've been seeing utilities include plans to add battery storage uh, as part of their capacity additions for future years. Um, Alongside that, I think I mentioned, you know, most of the generation resource additions are renewables, Um, even in states where there aren't requirements for 100 percent clean energy in the state. Uh, a lot of it's happening just on a a cost basis. Um, So we're seeing a lot of plans to add solar, wind and battery storage to the grid. Um, I think the storage, one of the main reasons is it can help integrate these larger amounts of renewable energy that utilities are planning alongside that to add, as well as to to help meet that peak demand, um, like I mentioned before too, and avoid the need for some of these um, natural gas peaker plants that they have. So it's something that we're seeing, and we're seeing, you know, more and more storage being included in these plans beyond just pilot projects to actually, you know, pretty significant amounts of storage.
0: The uh, Inflation Reduction Act has allocated a significant amount of funds for grid updates. Uh, I don't know if it's a complex uh, piece of legislation, and it's fairly new. In your opinion, is this an adequate amount? And if not, what amount of money do you think needs to be invested so that the grid can get modernized to meet all this uh, increased uh, demand?
1: Mm -hmm. So I sadly do not have a number for what is needed to modernize the grid. And if you find somebody that does, then I would love to meet them (laughs) and pick their brain. Um, But I mean, I think this is going to be um, a good start. At least toward modernizing the grid. It's interesting because most grid investment um, costs right now are recovered through rates, through ratepayers, and so this is a different source of funding, the tax base. Um, so you're avoiding maybe some need for rate increases, um, but still getting those benefits of um, investing in the grid. So a different funding pool um, to draw from. But there's there could still be a need for future investments. I think we'll see. Um, over, in general, you know, I think the process of grid modernization is going to be iterative. Um, it's not going to be something that's done, the grid's modernized, we're good to go now. Um, it's gonna be a continual process of assessing the needs um, and technological innovations uh, and regulatory innovations that we have.
0: So as a consumer and a business owner, the bottom line, are utility rates going up or down in the future? <laughs> Yeah,
1: um, the trend that we have seen is up, um, sadly, as a utility customer myself. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you know, hopefully there'll be some ways to help offset that. I think, you know, that's one reason that customers are looking toward things like energy efficiency and solar for their homes are these increasing utility rates. But the trajectory that we've seen so far and with increased grid needs uh, is up.
0: Well, I'm gonna bet on innovation and resourcefulness to keep those rates down. But (laughs) Autumn, it was wonderful speaking with you. This is a very complex topic. We just scratched the surface. (laughs) You did a very good job and thank you for joining us on Green Sense Show.
1: Yeah, thank you so much.
0: My guest this week was Autumn Proudlove, Associate Director of Policy and Markets at the NC Clean Energy Technology Center, discussing the electric grid and suggestions for modernizing it to keep up with the projected increase in demand. Visit the GreenSenseShow.com website to learn more about sponsorship. I'm Robert Colangelo. Thank you for listening to GreenSense and check out the GreenSense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on 105.9 FM WBBM Chicago. GreenSense Show is sponsored by CEA Technology, providing a sustainable modular indoor growing system. Visit C E A T E C H N to learn more.